Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins once penned the following. No worst, there is none. Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where? Where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddle in a main. A chief woe, world sorrow, on an age-old anvil, wince and sing, then lull, then leave off. Fury had shrieked, no lingering, let me be fell, force I must be brief. Oh, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. Nor does long our small Dorance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life death does end, and each day dies with sleep. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins. My name is Matt Cheminsky. This is the Curious Catholic Podcast. This episode is focused on grief. That is... Loving and losing those whom we love. Feeling acutely the absence of those we once held dear and who we long to be reunited with in fullness. And we wonder, how is it that the God we're told is love and the author of all beauty could allow for such cause of mourning and sorrow? More specifically, today's episode looks at all of this in reference to the life of St. Augustine and how he grieved and mourned the death of three particular individuals in his life. A friend, his mother Monica, and his son, Adeodatus. My guest today is Erica Kidd, who is Associate Professor of Catholic Studies and Director of the Graduate Program in Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Erica received her Ph.D. in Philosophy from Villanova University, and she writes and speaks on Augustine and the Augustinian tradition and teaches courses on happiness, conversion, and taking the incarnation seriously. She's currently at work on a book on how we can learn to hear the voice of God in our conversations with one another. And so in today's episode, Erica will guide us through these moments in Augustine's life where he mourns and grieves the loss of these three particular individuals whom he loves so dearly, though the story of today's episode will actually begin with her own profound experience of the very same tragedy of losing a son. Here's Erica. I was awarded uh, an Mbezi Augustine Fellowship at Villanova University out in Pennsylvania. Um, And about the same time that I was awarded that fellowship, I got word that I was pregnant with our second child. And so that was uh, really exciting and a little bit overwhelming um, (laughs) because, you know, when family life and career things are really all going well, it's a lot and in a really wonderful way. And so 
we started making plans for what our time out at Villanova was going to look like. So we were going to move our entire family. We normally live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we were going to move our entire family out to Villanova uh, for a semester so that I could take advantage of uh, that fellowship time and do some research out there. And when I, uh, as I was making these plans, of course, the baby was uh, right in the forefront of my mind because we were going to have an eight-month-old. So we already had, um, at that time, he would have been about one. one. So we were going to have a two-year-old that we were going to take with us out to Villanova. And then also we were going to have this eight-month-old that would be going along with us as well. And so what I was heading out to Villanova to do was research on a book, uh, Demagistro, The Teacher, which is a short dialogue that Augustine has with his son. And in that dialogue, they talk about the, uh, they talk about the question, why do we talk to each other? Augustine opens the conversation with the question, what is it that we're trying to accomplish when we speak with one another? And I've always thought this was a really interesting question. I've worked on this dialogue for a while. You know, why do we talk to each other? What are we trying to accomplish? And in that dialogue, Augustine thinks, um, Augustine plays out a couple of different possibilities. First, he says, well, it kind of looks like we talk to each other just to inform each other, right? Like, I tell you I had peanut butter toast for breakfast, or I tell you my husband is a web developer, or I tell you my son... Um, Teddy is five years old. And so they talk about that, you know, the, the real reason we talk to each other is just to inform each other. And Augustine, I won't take you through the whole dialogue. Um, it, it's cool, but a little bit dense, and there are lots of twists and turns. But Augustine kind of plays out that possibility with his son. And in fact, he even encourages his son to think that prayer is just about informing. Um, and, and that ends up sounding kind of strange and weird, and they talk about that. By the end of the dialogue, Augustine has taken us somewhere quite different um, from the way that he initially began. He begins with this idea that we only talk to inform each other, and he ends by raising the possibility that we talk to each other to help uh, to help us grow in love of God, basically the simplest way to put it. And And so when we speak with one another, we're not just telling each other facts about the world or even facts about our inner life, um, but we are reminding each other to listen to the voice of truth, to Christ's voice that speaks and resonates within each one of us, as long as we're not sinning and as long as we're learning to listen uh, well. So that was going to be my research project um, to kind of explain and unpack what was going on in that dialogue. There are some... um, there's not a lot of research that's been done on that dialogue, and some of the research that has been done is a little bit flat-footed and doesn't really capture the familial context. Like, why is Augustine having this conversation about words with his son rather than just with one of his um, philosophical interlocutors, another philosophical interlocutor, conversation partner? And so I was, you know, gathering my materials and getting ready and thinking about this whole project, and then. Um, came this very shocking moment, um, probably the worst moment of my life, which was that at 40 weeks gestation, this child that I was carrying um, arrived and he was stillborn, completely out of the blue. um, And they didn't, they didn't have any idea what had happened, but there was no, there was no warning. 
um, and I didn't even know it was possible for children to be stillborn. I mean, I suppose I had heard about it in some vague sense, but I had no imagination for it and no um, no uh, understanding that this was a real possibility, a thing that actually happens to people. And so then when I was heading out to Villanova eight months later, um, I was still very much in the midst of my grief. And of course, even moving out there sort of renewed the grief because we were packing up things and not packing up baby things. Um, we would be, you know, leaving our our second son, John Walter, who was stillborn. He was buried in St. Paul, so we would be leaving him behind. Um, and and we would be heading to Villanova. Now, it, it turned out... Um, there was an aspect of the dialogue, the teacher, that I had thought about and thought I would probably write about, but suddenly became, this aspect became terribly relevant to my own life and my own process of grieving, because it turns out that not long after Augustine and his son had this conversation about words and what we're trying to do with words and how our relationship shapes the possibility of our possibilities of our speaking, um, not long after that conversation happened in Augustine's life, his son, Adeodata, took sick with something. It was unexpected and died um, at about the age of 15 or 16. And so I showed up at Villanova to work on this text that was about words, but also I became increasingly convinced also was a kind of memorial to uh, a dead son. And so I to put it really simply, just arrived at Villanova with my grief and with Augustine's grief. And I spent a lot of time sitting in an office, reading the confessions, trying to figure out, um, actually not trying to figure anything out, just grieving. <laughs> and mm -hmm. my husband and I often commented that you know, my my husband has a master's degree in philosophy. I have a doctorate in philosophy. We're, um, we're people who like to think about things and figure things out and understand things. And one thing that was surprising about our grief was the way that it rocked us back on our heels and the way that we absolutely did not want answers. Um, mm. We didn't want to sit down and read um, some kind of explanation, um, some kind of the Odyssey explaining the ways of God to men. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily so keen on hearing about the ways of God. I mean, you know, my my faith was still intact, but but I didn't want to hear an explanation of why this was all for the best or um, why it had to happen or mm -hmm. why this was God's will or why this would be so good for so many people around me. Um, mm -hmm. And what was beautiful about reading Augustine, and I quickly turned to the Confessions as well as this other text, was that there was just no pretense of solving everything. Um, I found that Augustine, in, in several places in his confessions, writes about grief, and um, it just it wasn't too tidy. And so I was able to kind of sit with that. So as I was, as I was grieving and thinking and reading Augustine. And um, I think I'd put myself on the hook for a talk in January. So I had to write something. Mm -hmm. 
um, quickly. I arrived there in January and the talk was in late January um, down in Dallas. And um, I, this is the only way academics get things done is they (laughs) they put themselves on the hook to be in front of an audience and then they have to figure out something to say because otherwise it would be strange. So I, I tried to figure out what my big question was. And I think my question was, the thing I kept bringing back to God was this question, um, do you not, did you not see the beauty of my child? Because I felt like I had seen the beauty of my child. I mean, every mother thinks her child is beautiful. My child was beautiful. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, and both physically, but also, of course, in the life that I imagined for him. And I just felt like I didn't understand why God would want to take away something so beautiful. And I thought maybe, you know, there are a couple of different possibilities, I think, when we think about the beauty of the created order. And Augustine Augustine knows this really well, and this is why I was so drawn to him as I have been many times throughout my life. But Augustine said, how do I put this? I think we can say that Augustine is really vulnerable to creative beauties. And a lot of the confessions is about his love of created beauties. And then also about his failures of love of created beauties. And I think sometimes when we think about, not just Augustine, but Christianity more generally, we think that God doesn't necessarily want us to notice the beauty of the created order too much. What he really wants is for us to love God, for us to love him. And, and so we think that, that um, much of our life is meant to wean us away from noticing the beauty, the beauties that are all around us, right? So don't pay so much attention to the beauty of the people in your life or so much attention to the beauty of um, what the trees, the flowers, the created order, uh, Mm -hmm. because what you really need to do is love God. And there's actually a big argument um, in some of the literature on Augustine with respect to this concept that he talks about called the order of love. There's a big argument about whether Augustine really makes space for you to love the people in your life or love the created order in any kind of meaningful way. And I think he does. Um, but he's, he's always sort of trying to navigate, what do I do with these created beauties that so draw me, but sometimes the way they draw me is damaging and destructive, right? So think about his early mm-hmm. life and his sexual sin um, the way that he's drawn to the beauties of women and and that ends up being destructive. But then also, of course, he's drawn to and notices the beauty of his child and um, the beauty of his unnamed partner, beauty of lots of other creative beings. And so I just, I, I think my big question was, well, what am I supposed to do with this beauty? What does God want me to do with this? And why on earth would God let me lose something so beautiful um, and let me lose something that I love so deeply. And so those were the questions that I brought to Villanova and that I was wrestling with while I was there. In book nine of the confessions, we have a short brief snapshot or, or sort of 
narration from Augustine regarding a Deodatus and yeah it's concise it's concise and and there's a bit of a, a sort of and he even uses this word he uses the word all in, in sort of his memory of his son um, so what does that portion of the confession seem to suggest regarding Augustine's um, sense of his son his son's life his son's beauty um, the fact that his son was born from this relationship with his unnamed mistress um, yet nonetheless his son sort of um, it, it sort of bedazzles him with his beauty and, and sort of his um, sort of his his uh, intelligence as well and you know at the end he gives this idea to the reader that he has no anxiety about his son so right. how does all this work how does all this work within Augustine's sort of larger theological understanding of human life, but also specifically in relation to his son? Right, 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 right. And I remember reading that passage and thinking, okay, how do I have no anxiety over my child? What would that look like? Mm -hmm. I had a friend um, who, when my son died, she also had had a stillborn child. And she said, I always think of that child as my safe one, right? Like there's, there's nothing more there's nothing, there's nothing bad that's going to happen to that child. Their salvation is not in doubt. You know, they're, they're held in the love of God. And, and I thought, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yes, supposedly they're held in the love of God, but I still feel this tug, right? Like why, why does it feel like God's love and my love have to be intention? Like either God gets this child or I get this child. So what's, right. what's so beautiful about the passage that you allude to in book nine is that Augustine admits that his child, that the wonders of his child are not his own. There's this kind of open handedness to it. Right. And so rather than going down the path of wondering, you know, why didn't I get to keep this child? Um, you know, he was a child of such promise. Adiodatus, we know, was really bright. We can see in the dialogue, and, and Augustine says it there, too. Um, he was really bright, uh, surely on a really impressive career trajectory with Augustine as his father. And Augustine says, I, I just realized, I wish I had the passage in front of me, but I just realized that, mm -hmm. uh, or, or I can acknowledge that the child is, just not my own, and is fully loved by God. So he says, this is in book nine, this is around 9, 6, 14. He says, the brilliance he evinced filled me with awe, for who else but you could be the artificer of such prodigies? Very soon you took him away from this life on earth, but I remember him without anxiety. I feel nothing whatsoever for that man. Augustine says, I mean, Augustine admits um, he didn't go into the relationship with the unnamed woman with the best of intentions, and he certainly wasn't looking to have a child. And when this child arrives, so when this child arrives, um, he just arrives as this surprising gift. <laughs> you imagine this young couple. Um, of course, you know, when Augustine got involved with the unnamed woman, he was a manichae, and for the manichaeans to have a child was just the one of the worst things you could do, right? Because when you have a child, mm -hmm. um, so Manichaeism is this false age, uh, false Persian religion. And when you have a child, you are on their view, entangling that child up with the material, with materiality. And so um, you've taken this bit of light, bit of spirit and dragged it down into the material world and tied it up with a body. 
And so um, the mannequins didn't want you to have children at all. But Augustine and his wife, you know, over their um, decade-ish relationship, did end up having this child. And he arrives as such a beautiful gift. And Augustine is so grateful for that gift. When I read this passage, um, I think it's, it's really helpful to compare this with Augustine's earlier experience of grief that he records, which is back in book four, the death of his friend. And there's a really strong Mm -hmm. contrast between the way he talks about the death of that friend and the death of Adeodatus. And it all hinges uh, on this point of ownership and control. And so I think if we look at if we look at that earlier passage, we get a stronger sense of what it means for Augustine to have this open-handedness with respect to his own son. The thing that grounds the open-handedness is Augustine's conviction that God loves Augustine, rather, that God loves Augustine's son. Um, yeah, I think I just want to put a period there. It's, it's grounded by the fact that God loves Augustine's son. And, um, and that God is able to see and appreciate some of the beauty that Augustine has seen and appreciated. It's not like Augustine has to draw God's attention to it. So mm-hmm. in that earlier passage, um, Augustine tells the story of his friendship with a young man. Augustine had been off teaching and he comes back. He ends up coming back to his hometown and of Tagast. And he takes up with this friend. And basically, the long story short is Augustine has gotten mixed up with this really cool new faddish religion. It was like the hip thing that everyone was doing. Um, Everyone was getting involved with. And Augustine comes back from the big city of Carthage and starts, um, he makes his makes this friend into like a mini disciple and is telling him about this cool new religion. And both these guys had been raised as Catholics. They have that in their background, but um, the, obviously Augustine's faith is not strong and the friends wasn't Mm -hmm. either. And so these, these two friends um, just kind of got swept up. I mean, they're, they're like late, um, late adolescents and they get sort of swept up in this, in this religion and, and also in their friendship. They love spending time together. They love running around together. Um, they love having deep conversations. I'm thinking of high school, you know, like being on the phone with people into the middle of the night, mm-hmm. talking about really interesting questions. Right. And they're really close. And at some point, about a year into their relationship, maybe not quite a year into their relationship, the friend takes sick. And everyone is worried about him, and they decide to baptize him because at this time, um, Christians would often put off baptism. It washes away it, because, because they wanted um, young people to do all their sinning first before they went into the cleansing right. waters of baptism, right? And so actually, mm-hmm. Augustine, you know, ends up becoming a big proponent of infant baptism because he said there's so much grace there that people should have earlier on. We shouldn't let them sow their wild oats and then baptize them later. But someone decides that this friend is in danger of death and they decide to baptize him and he recovers and starts to do a little bit better. And so Augustine comes by his bedside and says to the friend, in effect, oh my goodness, wasn't that totally ridiculous. Can you believe, can you believe what they did there? Um, Can you believe that you were baptized? 
And the friend has a very surprising reaction. He says, uh, no, you need to get away from me. It seems like the friend feels like the baptism had some kind of impact. And Augustine, rather than entering more deeply into the friendship and saying, why do you, why do you think this baptism mattered? Why was this significant? I mean, the friend is having a near-death experience. He's going through a lot. <laughs> Um, and right. having this very dramatic religious experience. And Augustine's response is, it's really chilling in the text. He says, I decided to go away, um, basically give him some space, and I would come back when he was feeling better, and Augustine's words are, and then I would be able to do what I liked with him. Hmm. So as soon as the first hint of of disagreement or distance enters into the relationship, Augustine says, uh, I'm just going to give him some space right. until he comes around to my view again. <laughs> and then the friend ends up taking a turn for the worse and, and he dies and Augustine is totally bereft and bereft, not just because of the death of the, not just because his friend is dead, but there's a, there's a whole lot that goes into it. These, these passages where Augustine's describing his grief are really lyrical, but they're also a little bit, what, I don't want to, chilling or sad, because it becomes clear that Augustine's grief is really more about himself and less about right. the friend. And one of the things that he's grieving is this friend. I, I always the term mini me, which is probably really dated. I think it's from an Austin Powers movie from a long time ago. Right. Um, but the term mini yes. me always comes to mind when I read these passages. Augustine had this little mini me who, you know, I don't doubt that it was a really warm and engaging friendship, but there was something dark about it too. And the darkness is that he's leading this friend into error. And it's clear that what he really likes and enjoys, or an important part of the relationship that he really enjoys is the way that he can kind of do what he wants with his friend, get him to think the things that he wants. Um, and when he loses that, he, um, he loses something that's been really dear to him, but it, but it's complicated, right? And it sometimes happens in grief um, when we're grieving someone that we've known for a long time. Like we're grieving the loss of them, but we also may end up grieving the imperfections in our relationship. And um, it can just be sort of a complicated mess of things. And sometimes we're, we're grieving for ourselves and... Um, in good and bad ways, what that person has meant for us. But to go back to... And do we? I'm sorry, I'm just wondering if he also grieves his failures of love, <clears throat> the fact that he, he was so controlling in, in his mindset toward the friend. Does Augustine also have as part of his grief the regret over his sort of disordered loves? Yes, I think that's precisely right. We can think about this in two ways. Augustine, the bishop who's writing the Confessions, definitely it has that sorrow, right, that, that he loves so badly. But I think, um, and some people have written really nicely on this, I think we can say that even the young Augustine, when his friend dies, he realizes that he wasn't such a great friend to his friend. I mean, one, he, very obviously, he wasn't such a great friend because uh, he wasn't even at his friend's bedside. And surely that was a signal to him that his love 
for the friend hadn't been so great earlier on in their relationship. And so I see this as the kind of um, the photo negative or the bad double of the relationship that he had with his son with, uh, with the friend, what he loved was really his. And it was something that he held apart from God with the son. He realized that he and God shared a love for the son and were both able to appreciate the beauty of that son. When the friend dies, Augustine is still a manichae, and so he has this really terrible Manichaean theology that he's trying to use to comfort himself, and it just doesn't work, because the Manichaean theology basically, well, if I could put it simply, the Manichaean God doesn't really care that an individual being has died, and the Manichaean God is not particularly interested in individual beings. Um, I'm thinking sort of loosely here, the Manichaean God shouldn't be understood to be anything like the Christian God. Um, But basically, the Manichaeans told Augustine, uh, look, when your friend dies, it's really nothing to grieve, because that just means that he's escaped his material body and has been sort of resorbed into oneness, goodness, truth, light, beauty. So, ta-da! You know, your friend died, there's nothing left to grieve. And and actually, I think sometimes Christians can fall a little bit into a similar trap when we're thinking about grief, because we we trot out these platitudes about, you know, well, it's for the best. Um, there's this really horrific one that no one ever said to me, but I've heard people talk about, you know, God needed another angel in heaven. Um, right. And so we have these... Uh, these ways of talking that sometimes suggest that, you know, we really shouldn't grieve because our dead one, our, the one that we loved who's died, uh, they're held in, in God's care and we're going to see them in heaven. And so it's fine. And, um, and Augustine isn't comforted by that. And I think neither should we be when my son died, um, within, Oh, I think it was in less than 24 hours. I grabbed Simon Tugwell's book, The Beatitudes, which I highly recommend. I teach it to my freshmen um, every year in my happiness class, but it's just a meditation on the Beatitudes. It's it's that rare combination of really accessible and really deep. Uh, maybe not really accessible, but accessible, <laughs> accessible enough. Mm-hmm, sure. And he, um, in talking about the passage, blessed are those who mourn, he says, we mourn because there's a gap between how things are and how how they are meant to be. And we are living in that gap. So there's nothing wrong with grieving um, the temporary loss, the temporary separation from what we love, even as we do have confidence that what we love um, will be restored to us in in a form beyond all our imagining. But we're not there yet, and we don't have to pretend like we're already living the beatific vision when we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, Tugwell reminds us that God hates death, and so so that gap, that gap Christianity can take account of, but Manichaeism couldn't. And I'm certain that this experience with the death of his friend was one of those important steps that moved Augustine closer to um, 
to an embrace of the beauty of of the Christian faith. He does, um, if I can go to one other passage, he does sure. struggle a little bit as a Christian um, in one other passage where he's talking about his grief. And that's, again, in Book 9, where he's talking about the death of his mother. And when his mother dies, Augustine is a new Christian. And in the first moments after his death, after her death, he he seems to have this inner voice that's telling him that he shouldn't grieve because grief is something that the pagans do because they're without hope. And so because he has hope, he thinks that he probably shouldn't t- shed any tears and Adeodatus shouldn't shed any tears. And it's, a, it, it's, right. it's there's like this little whiff of um, Manichaean theology coming back. Like there's nothing really to grieve. It's, it's unproblematic. This is what's meant to happen. Um, you know, I'll see her again. And, and we understand where that comes from. But as the as Augustine's experience of grief unfolds over several pages in book nine, he tells us of this kind of stoic attitude. He's running around trying to find places that will soothe his grief. He goes to the baths. Um, he engages in conversation with his friends. He's just, you know, trying to remind himself that that uh, what's well, really about crying, like he doesn't need to cry. And then right, it almost struck me as like uh, some uh, misguided masculine machismo as well, mixed <laughs> with some stoicism. And- yes, exactly. And poor Adiodotus gets swept up in it because you know everyone's checking Adiodotus' tears. Like, pull yourself together, man. And right, he just wants to mourn his grandmother. Right, exactly, exactly. Right. Um, and so he's trying to figure out, you know, is it. Well, he's not trying to figure out. He thinks it's not appropriate to grieve. And then he says midway through the passage um, that it's interesting that you say there's this kind of machismo about it because when he goes to bed, he remembers uh, a hymn from Ambrose. And so Ambrose is this great father figure in Augustine's life, Ambrose the bishop. And the lines from Ambrose read... um, Creator God, O Lord of all who rule the skies, you clothe the day in radiant color, bid the night in quietness serve the gracious sway of sleep, that weary limbs restored to labor's use may rise again, and jaded minds abate their fret, and mourners find release from pain. And that line, mourners find release from pain, I think it's pivotal for Augustine because it's this father figure saying to him, Oh yeah, mourning is painful. You're gonna feel that pain, and and right. also there's this physical bodily component to grief. It's not just something that's going on in your head. It's something that can be relieved by. <laughs> Tuckwell has this great list. He says, you know, um, grieving. There, the a, a great grace of grieving is that God has given us sleep, and distraction, and alcohol. And all these ways of kind of helping us get through the just initial excruciating shock of grief. And so for someone to come alongside Augustine in his memory and say, yeah, this is very painful and you're going to need things like sleep 
to get through it. That validates right. for Augustine um, that mourning or grief isn't something that has to be shoved to the side as a Christian. It's something that that has to be undergone um, and is the intensity of one's grief is <clears throat> if, if the intensity of one's grief is a reminder of or a sign of the deep love that one has for what one grieves. And so after hearing that, something in Augustine is released and he finds himself grieving and grieving a whole bunch of different things, um, grieving the imperfections of his mother's love for him because they sure did not have a perfect relationship, grieving the imperfections of his love for her because he put her through a lot. He treated her really badly. Um, on the other side, you know, she sent away the woman that he loved. So, you know, she's a saint, but she was not perfect in, in her love for him. Um, and just sort of grieving, grieving the separation from her, um, grieving the fact that the Christian community, um, back in North Africa is going to be deprived of her company because she was such a great presence wherever she went, building up believers. And so there are just a whole bunch of different things to grieve. And Augustine says in one of my favorite passages um, from the Confessions, he said that his, he says that his griefs become a pillow for his heart and he rests on that pillow before God. And so there's this sense, not of, um, when you think of that resting before God, it's it's not that things have been solved. It's not that things are tidy, um, but it's that Augustine knows that he can bring his grief to God, and he knows that that the grief is intelligible to God. That God's not looking down on him from high like the Manichaean God would, saying, "Well, what's wrong with you? Get it together." You know, she's with me now. Um, but instead, he understands that that his tears can be brought from God, brought to God. And that his tears in no way um, suggest that he's not a real Christian or that he doesn't really have faith. Right. And maybe just one quick question, sort of dovetailing off of that before we talk about uh, your Catholic studies program. But what is the place of memorializing for Augustine, uh, memorializing Monica, his friend and his son, through his writings, it seems to be more than just sort of like a autobiographical, I'm going to tell the world about who I've been throughout my life. There seems to be something more going on with that act of sort of recalling the memory of these people before God as he confesses his life. Right. So I think there are at least two things going on. One, he wants to show us their beauty because he comes to learn over the course of his life that the beauty of the created order um, isn't something that we have to turn away from, but something that we need to come to appreciate more fully. So he's, it, he, he tells us that the whole of the created order is made up of signs and um, that, that point to or reveal who God is. And I think, I actually think of the Hopkins poem here about Christ being lovely in limbs that aren't his playing across 10,000 it in 10,000 places, right? These people are reveal something of who God is. They revealed something of who God was to Augustine. And then he broadens it and says, 
um, their lives weren't important just for me personally, but they can be a benefit to the whole of the Christian community. So he tries to invite us into that beauty and show us that beauty and then tries to do it in such a way that, that we don't, you know, sort of just get stuck on the people themselves or just appreciate their beauty, but understand how that beauty reveals the beauty of God and reveals the love of God for each one of his creatures. Hmm, that's wonderful. And so obviously you're, you're a fantastic teacher of Augustine. Um, so can you tell us about uh, your teaching of Augustine coming up this fall, but also more broadly, uh, the Catholic studies program that you direct? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I direct the graduate program, the master's program in Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. We are the first, the oldest, the largest Catholic studies uh, program in the country. And this fall, I will be offering a seminar on Augustine's Confessions, and happily, it will be an online seminar. So um, it's open to the public. People are welcome to um, to get in touch with us, to get in touch with our graduate coordinator or get in touch with me directly and find out more about that course. Um, the Confessions is such a rich text and I read it regularly. Uh, and every time something new and different strikes me about it, depending on what's going on in my own life and in the lives of my students, because they really shape the conversation in those courses. I would be remiss if I didn't put in a plug uh, for our program. We have lots of different kinds of students in it. So our program is an interdisciplinary program for people who are interested in doing a deep dive into Catholic thought and culture. So each one of our courses is interdisciplinary at the course level. So we'll be drawing together philosophy, literature, theology, history, um, sometimes the sciences in some kind of blend in every single course. So one of our one of my favorite courses, my colleague, Dr. John Boyle, teaches a course called Essentials of the Christian Faith, and they read the Catechism and Kristen Laverne's Daughter, um, the, great, mm. the great novel, side by side. So there's this, you know, looking at the teachings of the faith and then also looking at how they are, how they take on flesh in the life of this one particular woman. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so all our courses are interdisciplinary, but it's also important to say that they are um, integrative. So in every course, we're trying to understand the impact of the incarnation on human thought and culture. And we're trying to to see how Christ is all and is in all. So throughout history, throughout philosophy, throughout theology, where and how do we see Christ and where and how do we see hear him speaking to us. So it's a great joy to teach in the program because everyone in our program, you know, no one, no one's boss usually says to them, you have to go get a degree in Catholic studies to, to stay in your job. Um, Although a master's degree does have benefit, but everyone that's in our courses uh, and in the program really wants to be there and uh, really is seeking professional, uh, or rather, it really is seeking personal and spiritual transformation through a deeper encounter with our 2,000-year tradition of Catholic thought and culture. So, and of course, my love of Augustine fits really well with this because Augustine plays across 
disciplinary boundaries as well. You know, is he a philosopher? Is he a theologian? Is he a rhetorician? Um, so mm-hmm. that's been a really, a really good fit for me as well. Thanks to Erica Kidd for her generous offering of her time and insight into her own life and that of Augustine. And it's at this point in the episode where I usually try to tie things together, sum things up, or put a bow on everything. And I have to confess that I'm at a bit of a loss as how to do that. I think that what Erica offered us in this episode and its profundity, it stands alone. And I'm just going to let it be that way with a depth of gratitude and appreciation for what she offered us in, in her narration of her experience and how her interactions with the person of Augustine and his own experiences, you know, lent a certain meaning and guidance to her in her engagement with uh, the Augustinian um, texts that, that we have. So again, thank you very much to Erica. So please drop down into the show notes and hit some of the links there wherein you can um, engage with Erica. There is an academia.edu link that I encourage you to go to. There is an essay in particular that if you scroll down on that page, you can scroll down to an essay titled Parting Words, Augustine on Language and Loss, and that would tap into some of the themes from this episode. Please also check out uh, the University of St. Thomas link that's there for the graduate program in Catholic Studies that Erica directs. I have to say, looking at, at the course titles myself, I am certainly desirous of going through the program myself. Um, Lots of great titles. There's one on beauty in the Middle Ages being offered this summer. In the fall, again, I'll I'll reiterate and reemphasize that Erica's offering a course on the confessions that you can take, which is certainly enticing. And, uh, you know, definitely encourage you to to check out um, the link for the graduate program in Catholic studies at the University of St. Thomas. So this episode rounds out a series of five on the person, work, and legacy of St. Augustine and what he can mean for us in the present. If you haven't had a chance to listen to all five, I, I definitely hope you go back and, and pick up on any that, that you haven't had a chance to listen to yet. I'm particularly grateful for how the past two work together. So today's episode, but also the previous episode featuring Paul Camacho as we looked at the movie of the Tree of Life which has as its centerpiece the loss of a beloved son and brother and how the the characters, um, especially the the mother of the lost boy and the brother played by Sean Penn, how, how he mourns and confesses before God his memory of his brother and how his brother's model and his life was really a revelation of God to him. And so, again, these these two episodes really flow well with each other, and and I hope you get a chance to to see them in that light. Moving forward, we're actually going to take a look at Cardinal Newman, uh, or should I say St. John Henry Newman, the recently canonized Cardinal Newman. And so we'll have a, a series of four episodes on him, and we'll have, you know, the first one coming out in short order here. And so please do join us for that next episode from the Curious Catholic Podcast, where in each installment, we try to pilgrimage further through the Catholic imagination and all of the joy, meaning, and depth that can be found therein. 
Until that time, though, let's continue journeying further up and further in. <laughs>